Welcome to today's episode of The Money Mitch Effect. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, and thanks for joining this sports podcast experience. Not powered by anyone yet, but we're getting there. It's the 69th episode, nice, of the season. And we're going to talk about some college basketball, some college hockey. This is a great time of year. Tom Weisenbach is going to join me first to talk about the Sweet 16 and Elite 8. Some great games. That Kentucky-North Carolina game went down to the wire. And we'll look at it, the Final Four that features North Carolina versus Oregon. And South Carolina versus Gonzaga. Not exactly who we all expected to be there. You're not going to want to miss that. And then Mike Innergaard is going to join the show. My good friend from the... North Dakota area now lives in Minnesota. We're going to talk college hockey. Frozen Four Field is set. We'll talk about all the regionals and uh, we'll look ahead at the games. Thursday, April 6th in Chicago. Some good games there. It's the Money Mitch Effect. We're ready to go. It's college sports season. Let's do it. All right, Money Mitch Effect. We're going to recap now. College basketball, Sweet 16 and Elite Eight rounds. And bringing back Tom Weisenbach, we talked about the tournament before Tom. Thanks for joining the show again. Thank you so much, Mitch, for having me. And uh, we talked a little bit about uh, college basketball leading into the tournament last time. And I'm excited to kind of recap what we've seen this month so far. Yeah, and, and I would say a brand new studio. Oh, That's yeah. I'm going to describe it. We went up extra mile, got another mic. We're, we're trying to get big time here. I've got a new mic in front of me. I might sound a little different, a little better, a little worse maybe, depending on how your ears are, are handling this. But I think you need a sponsorship now for this studio. In due time. I mean, we're, we're crawling before we walk, but I think we're getting there. March Madness every year has its unpredictabilities, Tom. And in the first round, in the first round there was a ton of, of favorites winning. Not a lot of upsets. People took the negative out of it, like... There really wasn't that much parity. We're not sure if this is a good year of March Madness. I took the counter-argument that we're going to see better games in these rounds, and not to pat myself on the back, but the Sweet 16 and Elite 8 this year, as good as I can remember in recent memory. Yeah, well, every team kind of uh, was evenly matched. The, the one that jumps out at me is the uh, Kansas whooping up on Purdue, but it seemed after that that Kansas was going to be a shoe-in for the championship game because they were just running the field and, and beating down people, and and the next game, Oregon makes those shots, and, and they win. So it it's was, unpredictable. You know, and I think when you get to this point when you have a Sweet 16, you know, every team that should be here is ranked. So you, all these are teams that you're thinking, they're Cinderella in the sense of, could they actually win the title? Do we think they're going to win the title? But they're good basketball teams. And we saw that from the jump on Thursday all the way into the last game on Sunday, which we're going to get into a lot of. But let's start at that top left, that East region, the one that was at Madison Square Garden. And the only game that didn't live up to the hype was as dominant a performance defensively as I've seen all season, what South Carolina did to Baylor. We thought Baylor was flawed all year. We didn't think, a lot of us, myself included, didn't think they'd even get to this round. But they did. They faced South Carolina, who upset Duke. And to say they were still riding high after beating Duke was an understatement, Tom. They shut down Baylor's offense, which had been good all season. How did South Carolina do it? South Carolina has been a team that I've followed most of the year, and, and their defense, when it's on and, and when the fouls aren't going against them, is really good. And, and Frank Martin is one of the most intimidating coaches in, in college sports. Intimidating in men. college sports now. Yeah, intimidating <laughs> men. Just look at that. Even when he's in a good mood, it scares me. So uh, he's really solidified his coaching style, and I think it will carry on to – 
future South Carolina teams and his legacy uh, moving forward. But the players just came to play. Sindarius Thornwell and P.J. Dozier, Silva, they're not getting into too much foul trouble, and they're just locking down on defense and making that be their offense. So that game was 70-50, to 50, Tom, but if you watched it, you wouldn't have thought without looking at the score ticker that Baylor even got to 50. South Carolina defended every possession, and what I thought was interesting was that South Carolina didn't sit on the lead. They weren't a team, and we saw that in the Duke game, too, in the second half. I think they take their coach's mentality that we haven't won anything yet. We got this lead. A team could come right back in into the game and make a run at it, and you know, I don't know what happened at Kansas State. I know he left on his own. But taking the teams that he did had there as far as he did and now doing this at South Carolina, I don't think you can call it splash in the pan anymore. I mean, Frank Martin's for real and has proven himself to be a top-flight, elite-level coach in the college game. Yeah, and, and if you're going to take a program like SEC, South Carolina, Kansas State, like you alluded to, not necessarily mid-major programs, but mid standings programs, mm-hmm. you could say, in their power conferences, not the blue bloods that we see out of uh, Kentucky and, and Florida. A South Carolina team that hasn't been to a Final Four. This is his first time. And frankly, <laughs> no there you go. <laughs> my point being that if you're going to be one of those programs who would be a mid-major or, like we said, the standings middling, I think defense is the key. You either are a butler where you're making threes under uh, Brad Stevens yeah. in those years. You're either going to make your threes and defend really well or do both or just defend really well. And if the other team can't score points, then they can't win the game. I think grinding out the win is another way to look at it, too. Like, they're not going to run up and down the court. They, they know that that's not who they are. They got to the regional final to get, earn the right to go to the final four. They knew they were going to play the winner of the late night game on Friday in the East Region at Madison Square Garden. It was Wisconsin and Florida. And my goodness, how that game ended. You know, it was funny. I thought this game would be good in the sense of a competitive side, Tom. And for about 39 and a half minutes, we didn't see the offensive fireworks until the end. Wisconsin Showalter hits the running three to tie with less than three seconds left. And then Chioza, is that how you say his name? Running three, down two. How about the Wisconsin kids showing love to Aaron Rodgers in the stands with the discount double check after he hits that tying three? The best part about that, Tom, was that he waited. He was looking to play D when he saw the timeout, then he did it. He didn't Ah. do it right away. See, you know, I I pick up on those things. Smart. If if you would have done it right away, it could be burned on defense. That would have been a story, wouldn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it could have happened. But I think with this game, Wisconsin to me, and I saw this stat in the last 31 years since the tournament expanded, or 32 years now, 1985, tournament expands to 64 teams. Arizona and Wisconsin have tied for the most one-point losses with four. Wisconsin lost by one point. How hard that is to do. Four separate times in the last 32 years. You take pity on a fan base <laughs> when you see a stat like that. Uh, one-point losses. And three of them have been in the last, what, like four years? I guess. Yeah, you, you get, you know, Kentucky, when Harrison hit the three. Notre Dame game, I think that was one point last year when the guy hit the runner in the lane in the sweep. And then this year, I mean, it's just, it's it's terrible that this is what it comes to. But, look, Wisconsin's a good team. Nigel Hayes again had a good game and again made the move to put themselves up late. Chiazza just made the shot. I mean, that, there's nothing, it was a running three off balance. He got a good look at it and he just drilled it. Yeah, that's one of those you practice in the parking lot uh, at home growing up. Three, two, one, just let it go. And it, and it just happened to go in just... I think Wisconsin finished their 
game with the monster upset over Villanova. It wasn't that great of a monster upset, but if you look at the seeds, it was a monster upset. Eight <laughs> yeah. Not Horrible seeding for Wisconsin this I year. I think so, too. The Big Ten was oddly seeded this year with... Minnesota. <laughs> the team that so sad. won the Big Ten tournament gets the seven seed, yeah, Michigan and Minnesota gets five. a five seed. They were an underdog. They were betting underdog against Middle Tennessee, 12 seed. So they I think made it to this with uh, at least the first round. round yeah. Yeah. And I got to say third round, I guess, because they added the first four as an actual round now. But an all-SEC final in the East Regional, four seed Florida, seven seed South Carolina. How about three SEC teams? It's a basketball conference. Making the field of Elite Eight. It and is. the ACC only had one representative. It's a basketball conference now, you know? That's what the SEC is. But that's why <laughs> pre-ranking these conferences and watching the tournaments throughout the year, it's all hogwash, because... Well, that's how I feel about... March is March. Yeah, and that's how I feel about just about college athletics in general. We put too much stock in how good a conference is. At the end of the day, they're all competing for the same title. So I want to see it happen in, in March. In the same dollars, too. So this game was actually called by Vern Lundquist, which is fitting on CBS, and Florida, again... Was leading into the second half. South Carolina turned it on, wins the game. Seven seed South Carolina picked to be a preseason eighth in their own conference. Going to the final four. Wow. They really started the season hot. They beat Syracuse, I remember, uh, early in the season in the non-conference play. And they were unranked to start the year. Ended up in the rankings at some point throughout the season. And my issue with them, I picked them to lose to Marquette. I really like South Carolina throughout the year, and I thought they were losing the first round. They really um, it's, were playing uninspired basketball down the stretch. They lost in the SEC tournament to a good Alabama team. I believe it was either Alabama or Arkansas, that red and the A. Uh, yeah. Throws me off, but they just were playing uninspired basketball, and I, I didn't have the confidence that they would be able to kind of rally the troops and, and make a run. Yeah. But, you know, Frank, credit to Frank Martin there is if you get that one big upset win – your team will believe. And then that's the snowball effect. And Baylor was hit with an avalanche. Defensively, when you play as good as they've done, you're in every game. You talk about the avalanche, they put up more points and a half, 60-plus on Duke, than Coach K has ever allowed. So they're coming off that emotional high. And they just played D. They made the shots on the stretch. Florida, who they'd seen before, I, I think that's worth mentioning. It probably helped South Carolina with the momentum that they weren't playing this unknown team, a team they knew that they could match up with. That they had beaten already this season yeah, at their exactly. home, home arena. I was looking at, uh, briefly at South Carolina's halftime numbers throughout the last, well, five games or so, let's say. And they hadn't had the lead in any of those games oh. at halftime, including Florida. The only game they were ahead was that Baylor game, and they were ahead by, like, 16 points. Mm -hmm. So that says something, that they're comfortable in close games. Yeah, second-half team, and they know they can get stops. Well, South Carolina, moving on in March Madness, unbelievable, the seven seed is going to the Final Four. We'll go to the West region now with Tom Weisenbach on the Money Mitch Effect, recapping the Sweet 16 and Elite 8 of the 2017 College Basketball March Madness bracket. And... This one was a stunner. The big domino that fell, we'll start this way, Tom. Everybody was positioning one team to make that run to Phoenix, and it wasn't the one seed. It was two-seed Arizona. The Final Four is in Glendale. The SEC, the... 
Not me. Not, not, no, you're right. You, you stuck to your guns here. But the Pac-12 has had a drought, and we thought Arizona would be one of, if not the only one team, that could break it this year. They get beat by Xavier. 11-seed Xavier beats them in the Sweet 16. Chris Mack finally gets the victory over his former mentor, Sean Miller. I really hate saying that teams choke and teams give it away. Not in the Red Hot Chili Pepper sense, but this game was all Arizona's. They were up by double digits with about three or four minutes left to go, and they blew it. There's no other way to say it. No pun intended there because (laughs) Because, (laughs) Mr. Xavier himself, Trayvon, blew it. Racked up twenty five points. Yeah, wow. And Sean O'Mara, the key, the, the key inside. I I saw one of their their Florida State game. A key O'Mara was a key factor in mm-hmm. the lane there in that game, and it carried over. I think their coach Chris Mack had a little more confidence in him against Arizona, and they went to the well often with him and beat them in the paint by a healthy margin. And I mean, he had the winning bucket on that pass inside. And I also like the kid with the cool name, Kobe Jordan. That's another one to kind of just point out. But look. Kobe Simmons, Larry yeah. <laughs> Markin, your future NBA. Yeah. Stars here. And they're coming. I think Arizona, maybe there was a lot of pressure on them. Maybe they just didn't have as strong a team as we would have, as we would have hoped for for this team. But they didn't execute down the stretch. And I wonder, too, they were a great athletic team, could score in bunches. When it got to be crunch time, and you saw that a little bit in the St. Mary's game, there's a little uneasiness, and they just stopped trusting that they can get short buckets. They it turned into a one-man show on ISO ball, and Xavier just <laughs> made the plays when it counted. Yeah, I've seen Arizona fall, kind of just falls, lulls themselves to sleep, honestly, yeah. throughout a, a season and a game, and I think that might have been what happened it's a conundrum a lot of the time. It is. It's hard if, to explain. If those wide-open three-point shots go in, then you're going to win the game. But if they're not falling, then they're able to buy shots. It's the tournament. And <laughs> whenever I hear a coach give advice about the tournament, mm-hmm. it's always, just hit your shots. And it'll <laughs> happen. But with, with Arizona, I they just weren't playing disciplined ball. And I looked like their top-flight prospects were just trying to play me ball, like you said, elevate their draft stock. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up, though. UCLA, Kentucky, yeah. the same thing. Well, that's why I'm glad you brought that up, because Coach Cal and now Steve Alford, they're getting a lot of flack, and other coaches, too, for the one-and-dones. Arizona's low-key been almost behind Kentucky, I'd say probably the next biggest school in leading the one-and-done charge. I do question Miller a little bit. He's Duke a great, also, though, too, you know, and they've made early well, assets. They have, and they've, and they've, they've won run, national championships. So you get what you give there. But I think Miller, I mean, you got to question it sometimes. I mean, he's had great regular season success, but he has not made a Final Four. More how many years then? Seven years now? It's kind of hard to believe. Yeah, and I think at that last possession, you, you see a lot of guys uh, take their timeouts there. They didn't have a timeout left in that end of that game, and... You saw how it happened. Now, North Carolina did have a timeout at the end of their game, and we'll get to that later. No, we will. <laughs> well, and speaking of end of possessions, that's a great way to segue to the next game, the game that took place before this in the West region. Gonzaga knocked off West Virginia by three points. Oh, my God, was that the worst end of possession I think I may have ever seen at the game of basketball. We'd have to go to some youth league footage to see. 
But West Virginia, Tom, was right there. They that played was... Gonzaga to the brink, to the limit, however you want to say it. Gonzaga was right there with them, stride for stride. It was a great competitive game. But I just, I, I got a problem with ISO hero ball at the end. You saw Xavier, North Carolina, countless other teams win games by doing what they've done and running a set play and getting the best look. And then you got West Virginia just running in circles on the perimeter, throwing up shots with time on the clock. That was the other big thing to me. They didn't have to rush all those threes at that point. Yeah, that, that game was very sloppy, and that, that game was sloppy from the start. I mean, you know West Virginia's style of play is going to be get your guys in foul trouble slash just play really tough, hard-nosed defense throughout. That's Bob, Bob Huggins' way. Frank Martin's way of playing defense is a lot different. It's more mixing up looks mm-hmm. and with South Carolina, mixing up looks and, and, and really just locking down in the half court. And when you have to go full press, you do. It's not a Havoc, a Shaka Smart style, Bob Huggins style like it is. And so I don't know if that freelance style of play got to them at the end there or if they just weren't prepared enough for that endgame situation. And that kind of showed itself throughout the regular season in some of their losses this year on the road. The two big things for Gonzaga for me in this game, we talked about it before the tournament started. What's one of the things that could screw a top team? Foul trouble of a star player. And Gonzaga was hit with that hard. Now on the plus side, their guy gets in foul trouble, he comes back and just starts knocking down shots. He stayed checked into the game. I look back at it thinking, okay, well, Gonzaga's a mentally tough team. That's what I got out of it because a lot of teams would have folded in that situation. They played D. They kept themselves in it. And I'm with you on the West Virginia freelance side of it. I I thought they made some great athletic plays. They showed a lot of heart getting back in when they were kind of up against the ropes. But maybe they were out of energy. Maybe they just didn't have the plays in their arsenal to beat Gonzaga. I left that game thinking... Yeah, Gonzaga probably deserved to win this one. Yeah, and I've been saying all year that, that Gonzaga has probably the best team they've had in their brief history of making runs, and that's getting close to a decade now in brief history. But <laughs> Hey, the first Final Four, though. They have the size in spades. They have, if Shemek Karnowski gets into foul trouble, Zach Collins can come in off the bench. If that guy gets into foul trouble, they've yeah. got a guy they brought in for scrub time who has given Shemek his best reps in practice. So they have the big guys who can either be lumbering inside, like a Shemek Karnowski, a Zach Collins who's thin as a rail, Austin Tilly, who is just as tall, but I think can step out and shoot a mid-range yeah. jumper. And next thing you know, you have your guards, Jordan Matthews, Nigel Williams-Goss, Jonathan Williams, who can all shoot a three. So you're, so, <laughs> so you're definitely sold on this team being championship-level good. Oh, I think they're worthy, yes. I, I mean, at this point, I have to root for, for North Carolina because of uh, the bracket <laughs> yeah, oh, challenges. That's, that's another thing. Well, and I don't want to take anything away from them, but I'm looking at their path to the Final Four. An 11 seed, a 4 seed, uh, was it an 8 or a 9, and a 16. Mm-hmm. And you know, honestly, the biggest trouble they had was with the 16. Yeah, in the so first half, and was, they had to kind of... It was Northwestern and 18. Well, Northwestern punched them a little. And I know there's some people that are upset about a non-goaltending. Oh, yeah, that was your, probably the, the turning point of that game there. But tell your coach not to run on the floor be my counter to that. Okay, so they played Xavier in the Elite Eight, and to beat West Virginia, that was a dogfight. To beat Xavier, that was a beatdown. They destroyed them from the opening tip-off. That was... 
the pinnacle of what Gonzaga can play like. I know Xavier wasn't there, but offensively, where did that come from from Gonzaga? I think they found all this time and space in, in the middle of the court because they played such a tenacious defense in West Virginia. That was their biggest test, was if they would face a pressing team, how would they respond? It took a fight, like we said, and, and they were able to kind of run their sets and... If that beard isn't a matchup problem for his face, then he's a matchup problem. Honestly, in college, this is, <laughs> I'm still, I'm wondering. Getting into the Xavier game, I, I don't know if Xavier ran out of gas. I don't know if they were just happy to be there and breaking through, so to speak. But you know, maybe they need to burn another month of their calendar. I, I don't know what it was. But Gonzaga took it to him from the beginning, and Xavier had no answers. And, and all year with the Xavier team, we were expecting them to counterpunch you know, they've been trailing in a lot of these games. They were able to find a way to overcome these deficits. Didn't work with Gonzaga, and they move on. I'm, I'm impressed with what Gonzaga's done. I'm just still I'm still not sure. You know, we're, we're going to see what happens in this next game against South Carolina, but it's a real test for you, sure. You think that uh, Chris Mack would have maybe taken a big sigh of relief and say, all right, I beat my, you know, buddy, and maybe that got to his head a little bit, but maybe the happy to be here... At that point, playing with house money, you can call it, some, some other call it, but yeah, there's something to that. Well, we'll move on now. Next region is, we're going to talk about is the Midwest, Money Mitch Effect, Time Weisenbach, March Madness, Sweet 16 round, and Elite Eight recap. You alluded to Purdue getting shellacked by Kansas. That was a game where, I don't want to say we saw it coming, but we know the horses Kansas have. Purdue was an up-and-down team all season, very inconsistent. It fit what could have been expected. Oregon, Michigan, though, on the other hand, for the right to play Kansas, i got to give Oregon prop for one thing, defending that Michigan team. And Oregon was no stranger to that adversity. That, I think, is, has a, a lot to do with it throughout the season. Is You have to play in close games in order to pull out close games. Maybe Gonzaga is the exception to that rule with their 20-point wins throughout the season. <laughs> but Oregon has hit game-winning three after game-winning three after game-winning three this season. Clutch right. moments they've had a lot of. I mean, of even beating Michigan. Rhode Island. Michigan. So you can get there. Yes, absolutely. And, and Michigan was riding the wave of the feel-good story. Our plane ran off the, the runway. Yeah. And that brought them closer together, I feel, and they made their run to the Big Ten Championship. They come into the NCAA tournament, like you alluded to, beating Louisville, beating those other teams, and giving Oregon a run. Mm-hmm. I think with Purdue, as we started this conversation with, and Michigan, good teams in a down Big Ten conference, and the better teams just won those games. There was underdog potential with Oregon. I think they were actually the betting underdog in this 3-7 matchup, given what had transpired the rounds before. I'm going to say something maybe a little controversial for Michigan. I might seem biased because I obviously don't like them at all. I thought the matchups were in their favor to get to the Sweet 16. I thought Oklahoma State in the first round is just like them, an offensive team. That was like 92-91. So I thought that was a favorable matchup for Michigan. And looking at Louisville, they weren't a team that could score that much, so I always felt like going into that matchup that if Michigan was able to break through or Louisville's press the, I didn't know how 
they match up. And I, and I just look right. at the bracket from that way. I don't know if they would have beaten a Duke or they would have made a run at a Kentucky or UCLA. So I thought the the matchups favored Michigan. Louisville was an under-the-radar two-seed. Yeah. I mean, they earned it, but I thought Styles obviously make fights, as the old adage goes, and I thought Michigan had a favorable run, favorable draw for their regard. Oregon still had to make the plays. They did that. They beat Michigan. They got to Kansas. Who would have thought the Pac-12 would have their representative be Oregon? It's insane to me that the drought ends with the Ducks. The Pac-12 had not had a Final Four team since New Silly in 2008, coming on in their third straight at the time. We thought that would last forever. But then this game comes, Kansas Bill Self in the Elite Eight, and they can't win again. Another Elite Eight loss for Self and the Jayhawks. Oregon wins a game, Tom, and that final score wasn't even as close as what it actually was. 74 to 60. Oregon dominated. I mean, Oregon was the bigger, better team in big time moments. The one game I'll reference is the game where Oregon shellacked Arizona at Oregon. They're they, making their three-point yeah. shots, and oh. that they're making their three-point yeah. shots, they're unbeatable. I'm only saying that's what I'm concerned with with the yeah. North Carolina matchup that's in the Final Four. The injury, you lose your best player. That's why I didn't expect this. I thought Oregon was a good team, and you know what? When they played Arizona in the Pac-12 title game, and they only lost by like three or four, getting that far with and without their player. I thought that showed their reserve, that showed their resolve, and winning close games against Rhode Island did that. But I guess I'll say to, to beat Kansas, not a huge stunner, but to beat them like this, I would say a huge stunner, beating sure. Kansas by 14. The point swing being, or the deficit being as, as dramatic as it was when Kansas is coming off a 30-40 point win over a top 15 team throughout the year. It's super impressive. I, you just can't say anything else. And, and Oregon getting to the, to the Final Four is a very good story. I think we were just talking about how <laughs> we're probably going to get to the Final Four matchups in a bit, mm-hmm. but I think the NCAA is rooting for North Carolina in this one. I can't imagine they're, they're pulling for Oregon a whole no. lot, and I think they're rooting for the two number one seeds to face each other to kind of find out if Gonzaga is real. I think their nightmare matchup would be South Carolina versus Oregon. And the matchup I'm hoping to see is the South Carolina versus North Carolina. Everybody in the Carolinas would be uh, raring to go for this one. They don't play each other that often, South Carolina and North Carolina. And, and that would be a very good story. I do have to get to Kansas, though, because we've seen this again. Ja- you know, Jackson's a stud. He's going to be probably the third pick. Josh Jackson is in the NBA draft, maybe even the second pick. But they they have a, a big-time struggle in these games. I don't know if it's coaching. I don't know if players have checked out. It's not a talent shortage because they've had multiple NBA players come through, the, the Wiggins, the MB, now Jackson. I mean, they, they, Frank Mason's the one that I think you have to put some blame on. Yeah. It's not necessarily Jackson's fault. Mm-hmm as the freshman to magically make them a Final Four contender. Right. And you got to defend. I mean, they didn't they didn't do anything to slow down Oregon. And they're a team that can get very discouraged defensively if their shots don't go down. Frank especially. I know during their senior day, Frank Mason and Kansas were losing throughout that game. And finally Bill Self told Frank, hey, get your you-know-what out of your you-know-what. And, <laughs> and then Frank took over and they won the game. So I think these kids are capable of getting in ruts mentally. And, well, that's one of the reasons I have a problem with the one-and-done rule is that 
these kids think they're, you know, I'm going to be on my soapbox. Get off my lawn. But <laughs> these kids think they're amazing already and they're on their way to the NBA, but they have no idea what type of competition is hitting them from all of these different conferences I, yeah. throughout the country, let alone the NBA coming up. I, I agree with you, and I'm not, we're not going to get into all that right now, but I'll say this. My dream is that we'll get to a point where you could go right out of high school if you want, but you sign up, you sign for two. And the biggest thing with that is I trust the current and ex-players when they say the biggest growth in player development happens that summer between your freshman and sophomore year. Give them a summer still in the college game to improve, and I think you'll see it. And I think it will help the pro game, too. I mean, guys are coming in raw talent, but they have to learn the game, they have to learn the system, and then that's costing people jobs, coaches, GMs. that have to take chances on players that aren't ready. You're mortgaging your future on someone. You don't know what type of player they're going to develop. You have to coach these NBA players. You're you look at your Minnesota Timberwolves. You're basically coaching college juniors and seniors at this point, two years later after they were drafted, and so next year now they would be their rookie year in the NBA had they did the four year college routine. Right. Yeah. And imagine what their game would have been like then, or how they manage games in game, and what it would do for the tournament if these players who have been Somebody's got to do a blog or something on that because if, if these players were on these teams at this time, well, like what would it be, Jalil Okafor on Duke still? It would be an incredible... Ingram's still there. I mean, good Lord. Oh, my gosh, yes. Uh, yeah, well... Hey, now, that would affect the recruiting look currently. At, look at the NBA. I mean, Devin Booker's 70-point game, they started a lineup that only Kentucky that night, that Friday night of basketball, had a younger starting five. All the final, all the NCAA tournament teams playing that day had older lineups than the Suns throughout there. So it's a different game. But we do have one more region to get to, Money Mitch Effect with Tom Weisenbach. NCAA tournament recap. It's South. North Carolina beat Butler. I don't want to spend too much time on this game, but I do want to give Butler some props, Tom. This is a team that, you know, for most of the season, we weren't sure what we were going to get. They beat Villanova twice. They had some tough losses in there. It wasn't the end of the season that they, that they wanted to have, but getting to the Sweet 16 for this program, I think, is a step in the right direction. And North Carolina ultimately just had too much talent for them on Friday night. Yeah, the, the pace that Butler tried to play in the first half was concerning for me with you would see them get, it, get the, the ball on, in transition either on a defensive rebound or a turnover, and and they would try and push up the floor. The problem was it was one guy on two guys, and they would mm-hmm. basically just swipe it back from them, and, and North Carolina was dictating the pace of a lot of the action. Yeah, Butler put up a really good fight, but frankly, if you're going to try and play North Carolina basketball at a North Carolina basketball pace, you're going to lose. If, if that's not your game <laughs> going into the game. Yeah. I mean, Hats off to them. They made their run, and, and Big East really showed out this year with Xavier and Butler, making it as far as they did. And Even though Villanova went down, they, they still have the other teams to kind of pick up the slack a little bit and show off their depth. Maybe not as good as they wanted to be at the top, but a deeper conference than we give credit to, and I think that's going to help them get at large, at large bids in the future. Seton Hall made a... Did they win their first round? Or yeah, that, was a, that was the hard foul that yeah. ended up the flagrant foul. Yeah, Arkansas. Right. Yeah, uh, Marquette lost also, but uh, that's our Big East wrap-up. <laughs> there it is, and that's the Big East. Well, the Friday night game between UCLA and Kentucky in this region, the Sweet 16 matchup there, Tom, was oh, hyped up for a lot of reasons. Yeah, it had three of the top maybe six picks in the draft. 
You had two from Kentucky and Fox and Monk, Lonzo Ball. Obviously, Kentucky wins this game. Kentucky wins this game, Tom. They beat the Bruins. And I'll start with the player that I want to give the most credit to here. Fox was amazing. He was a leader on offense, scoring points, which he's not known for. What he is more known for is defense. And you're never going to shut down in the college game a player of the caliber of Lonzo Ball. But he did as good a job as I've seen anyone do this year on him. Fox was the difference maker to me in this one. Yeah, and him and Monk really took over when they needed to. I struggled to believe in Kentucky this year. I think that was well documented the last time I joined you. And I liked UCLA a lot in this game because of that. And I picked them to win my tournament, so maybe I'm a little biased in this analysis, but... I mean, UCLA's no slouch for talent either, because they have Leaf, and they have Alford, and they have guys that could make plays. Welsh. Welsh. I think they couldn't. They couldn't get stops, and they couldn't rebound. That's game over against Kentucky. Like, if you don't do that, North Carolina did that, they won. Barely. That's where it begins and ends for me. Defending and rebound. I don't think Ball played the most inspired basketball. Checked out, maybe? You think? Uh, a lot of distractions around that kid. <laughs> I wonder what that could be. Is there someone in his life that maybe needs to, like, tone yeah, it down? I don't know. Family member, girlfriend. Yeah, anybody that might know. just be getting in the news too much. Well, well, we'll, we'll do some research. We'll do some detective work and get back to you listeners. His name might start with love. That's a good, in his family, there's a good chance of that. <laughs> I look at it like this. I don't think Lonzo Ball checked out until maybe there was some adversity towards the end of that game. I don't think any of these top players, and I'm not accusing him of doing so, I'm just saying I don't think any of these one-and-dones are checked out like while the game, like you know, going into a game, thinking about it. I just think when it gets to, you know, say down seven or eight with four or five minutes left, then you're like, well, well it's not looking good. The odds are this is, this is it. Start looking at the yellow then, pages for accountants. Yeah, then you start looking ahead. And I've seen that before, time and time again, where they're not the most comeback-friendly situations. I'll, I'll describe it like that. But you got to give credit to Kentucky. I mean, it was a, it was a back-and-forth game in the first half. They jumped out early. They made their run in the second, and they got it done. Setting up the stage for an Elite Eight matchup that we were all looking forward to. Even if you're not a fan of either school, as a lot of people <laughs> across the country aren't, you got to respect the basketball. Kentucky, North Carolina, up and down the court, all game. North Carolina won 75-73. The final two minutes of this game, the final two minutes of basketball are often described as lengthy and drawn out. This had everything you wanted, including North Carolina almost blowing the game multiple times. Multiple times. <laughs> if they would have lost that game at any point, if they would have found a way to blow the game, we would be talking about the choke on Chapel Hill for years and decades to come. How they had a turnover late, Missed free throws, gave Monk open looks. The last shot was an open look. He just drilled it into double coverage. But North Carolina did win on that final possession where Monk hits the three. Those threes by Monk are <laughs> incredible. I'm like, there's no shot. All right, game's over. The second over. one was a joke. Like, he is <laughs> flailing, legs up in the air, body legs flying all around him. I was just sitting here go, game over. Oh, never mind. Oh, my goodness. There's just sh- a lot of oh, my gods happening at that point in time. When he shot it. Tom, did you think, this is what I thought, only way this goes in is if he banks it in, the trajectory of the ball. I thought it was so high arching. The second one. Yeah, the second one. Yeah. It looked like it was a flail at the backboard. 
more than it actually took a long time to come down. Well, monk shots there. They were not Calipari plays. They were just go out there and make something happen. But they were looking for him. And he didn't shoot well the entire game. So for him to have confidence to step in, Fox played great as well. North Carolina, what got them that lead, Tom, was what got them to this point, being that rebounding team, being that physical presence inside. Kentucky hadn't really, I mean, the last time they played, this game was in the 90s. Monk hit the shot to win. This was a different Carolina team. They didn't play at the, at the clip that Kentucky wanted to go. You can tell Kentucky just wants to go, 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 like run up and down the court. I think North Carolina pulling it back put them in position to win this game. Yeah, I don't think the bigs for North Carolina are such a difference maker. And, and Bam Adebayo had a valiant effort, but he's the guy there. I don't think they can really rely on Gabriel to get those quality minutes. Humphreys gave them a few of those quality minutes, much like uh, the, the kid with the game-winning shot, Luke May, did for, May. for North Carolina. But they match up pretty well as far as measurables go. And uh, I just think Meeks had the experience down the stretch to, to kind of handle out of bio. And, and bam, ooh, Pitt is going to be a player. Well, May... What a year for walk-ons, huh? Like, walk-on third scholarship players? I mean, this is two big-time college events in football and basketball now where walk-ons are, are determining it. The end of that game, Tom, what we talked about it earlier. North Carolina had a timeout. They didn't use it. Genius call. And I know Roy Williams has botched this before. He has gotten criticism, some of it deserved, some of it not, for how he's handled end-of-game decisions. But I think we're in agreement here. You don't let the defense set. You have enough time to run up the floor and get a quality look, and they did just that. Poison the lane by the, by the point guard. Found May in his spot, who knocked down the shot with ease. It and you know what he said after the game? It's just what I do every day in practice. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so the I last 15 seconds of that game, I'll read the play-by-play for you. So 17 seconds, North Carolina calls a timeout. There's a foul on Malik Monk. Mm-hmm. Justin Jackson misses a free throw. The game is a three-point North Carolina lead. Fox gets the rebound, kicks it out to Monk. Or they, they swing it around. Briscoe ends up kicking it out to Monk. Hits the three-pointer at the top of the key. Luke May comes down. <laughs> he sits in his spot. He does, right there. Theo Pinson kicks it out to him, and bam. Have you seen the video of the Kentucky fans? Oh, the yeah. Loved it. Well, thinking they I mean, won the I'm game, yeah. and then... Only to realize it's agony. The only way I think we can draw a comparison would be Seahawks-Patriots-Super Bowl walk-off. Humongous It's still still different because you don't get the... It's not in real time. Like It'd probably be... The only thing I think I could compare it to would be if a guy's open for like a fade and like fumbles at the one-yard line. You're like, the game's over. Like He's he's running down the sideline for the win and then gets stripped or something. Because you have that real time of like, what? That was but like two contrasting plays, yeah, sure. that's all I'm saying. True. It well, was insane. Right. How about, I mean, the poise to, you know, the internal clock, getting, getting the look that you need with four seconds, how quick they moved up and down the court, and how May knew he had just enough time to set, he didn't rush that shot. He made it with point three left to go, but. That's coaching, though. Yeah. I, I mean, I hearken back to the, the I mean, they learned from that championship game. Last season, where I know, granted they had a timeout, they called a play. Villanova did came down and and hit their shot to win the national championship. 
I think it was the national championship game on the line. Roy Williams has taken a little 20. You think? Ooh. I don't know. We'll see. How about, how about who they're playing? A young, freshman, one-and-done, heavy Kentucky team that might not be the most well-studied, well-versed in defense? An inexperienced team? Maybe is the best team to go and just play freestyle against? Yeah, did you see the out of bio and Fox in the locker room crying after the game? I mean, I don't. I I, I appreciate I that. I don't. I do too. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't really believe they cared that much. And, I, and yeah. I'm borrowing that quote from Fox himself in mm-hmm. that post game scrum. Yeah. That people were questioning how much they did care because they were a little blasé throughout that SEC schedule. They really did leave it all out on the floor, and I, I felt for those yeah. kids. I do. I mean, you always do. I mean, you get the chance to go to enough of these games in college sports, especially. I remember going to an NCAF, a Frozen Four hockey game. It ended in a triple overtime. And you look at one end of the ice, and it's just joy, jubilation. The other end is just a bunch of guys crying. So you see both sides of the spectrum. And look, it means something. These guys are playing for arguably their livelihood. But I expect them to care. They could always come back next year. <laughs> and that's If it meant that much to them, they could come back is. next year that's, and win the freaking title. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. don't need to go to the NBA right now. Well, that's what this is all building to, by the way. I'm just going to throw that out there. It might not be next year. It might not be in five years. But we will get to a point in this current system, unless it's changed, where five friends are going to be like, two years, we're going together. And they will destroy the college basketball scene that second year. And that's the AAU mentality of Mm -hmm. decades kind of culminating Mm -hmm. in the LeBron James Big Three. Let's go somewhere and, and make something special happen. But if it doesn't, that's the beauty of the one and done, though, is that it doesn't always happen. Yeah. If they lose like Kentucky did, and they decide, well, let's do it for a year, they either decide to come back or they, and that kind of throws yeah. a loop in the coach's recruiting schedule and how many scholarships does he actually have to offer? What is this kid's decision? I'm going to try my best to, you know, quote, air quotes, help them along in whatever they want to do. But, you know, you see Cal Perry's interviews, and, and he kind of urges the kids to, well, the next to, class to go ahead because the next class is coming, and he put all that work into that class. So it's a very different two sides of the coin style with the coach's mindset is versus what the players are. Honestly, I don't feel bad for those kids in the locker room no, crying never. that bad because they I mean, can call, they, yeah. I mean my, my whole thing is... I mean, I, I, I respect it. I'll put it that way. I don't feel bad for that... Generation one and done. Look at North Carolina. They lost yeah. in, in critical fashion. Who mm-hmm. did they lose? They pretty much returned most of their, mm-hmm. their roster from the previous season and look yeah. what they're doing. Well, we're going to move on, wrap this up. Tom Weisbach, Money Mitch Effect. We'll look at the final four matchups with some quick thoughts there. We're going gonna to have another episode up before the actual final. But I want to look at this final four from this perspective. You have North Carolina 20 final fours. Oregon won 1939. Respect that. And none from the other two teams. So North Carolina really, you know, shouldering most of the weight here. They get Oregon in an interesting first-round matchup where Oregon's got the shooters and could be the most difficult matchup North Carolina faces. I'm not saying they're the best team or the second-best team in that case, but in terms of stylistically, North Carolina might have their hands full with this duck squad. Yeah, that it's it's very tough to handicap. The only way that I can think that Oregon has a shot in this game is if they shoot more than 60%. They have to shoot lights out 
Because they're not getting rebounds on this North Carolina team. No, and they could be tenacious on the defensive end, but if North Carolina grinds out possession after possession with their... I mean, North Carolina defends themselves. They can't run unless they're getting rebounds and, and, and steals. Mm-hmm. So that's their game. And I think the only way is if shots aren't falling for North Carolina, shots are falling yeah. for, for Oregon, the bigs for North Carolina get in foul trouble a little bit, and, and that is your formula for beating North Carolina if you're Oregon. The pressure is always on in these scenarios, getting used to the stadium. They're playing a football stadium, is this right? And they, oh, every year. But they haven't yet. This is the first yeah. of this tournament that's yeah, going to be right. in a football stadium. So if that takes some getting used to. They're, I know they're going to be there for a couple days, so they, they're going to shoot around there for a while, but mm-hmm. sight lines are different. It's mm-hmm. going to take uh, five to ten minutes in game time for Oregon to get accustomed to that. North Carolina, been there, done that, understands the stakes, and they can hit the ground running if they get up 15 early. Yeah. Well, I look at I look at it like a North Carolina team that has the experience that knows what this moment feels like. Oregon's going to come out and just have to go they, broke. They could either be tight or loose. and I think you have, have to be loose to have a chance in this one. So mm-hmm. I'm looking at that. The other game, Gonzaga-South Carolina, I think that's going to be a blood sport. I, I think that's going to be physical. It's going to be mean. Not going to be easy on the eyes at times. I think it's a coin flip game to me. And, and I'm not putting down Gonzaga when I say that, but the way South Carolina's coming in and the matchups and... I think they can really, really be in this one to the end. Do you think it matters that it's in the west, western side of the country this year with the two teams that are in it, Gonzaga and Oregon left? It, does it matter, or is it whoever had tickets has tickets? Oh, like, I don't. Oh, you mean from a fan support? From, like, a fan support? No, I don't. Home I, court I, advantage. North Carolina's coming. They're coming. <laughs> you know yeah. that's happening. But is South Carolina coming? That's, that's fair. And, and I would say it doesn't matter from a basketball sense. Because South Carolina's style is maybe more on the portable side. They play D, they play ugly basketball. Frank Martin's not going to let them slouch. I think they could travel better than a lot of teams in their position. It's also funny because a lot of those North Carolina fans were rooting for South Carolina during the South Carolina versus Duke game oh, yeah. at the same building in, in South Carolina there. So that was a very that was one of the more fun things that I um, mm-hmm. saw from the tournament was oh, North yeah. Carolina plays early, fans stick around. Root against their arch rival Dukes and for South Carolina, a possible foe in the finals. Well, yeah, who saw that coming? But it could be the matchup. It's well, a wild story. I'm gonna say I'll call my shot here. I think North Carolina beats Oregon. I like South Carolina beat Gonzaga. I'd love to see it. And I'm going there, but for the Tar Heels not to win this title, I'd be pretty stunned. I would say mildly stunned. Anything can happen, but. Setting up to be their year. I thought they've been the best team in the country for a great deal of the year. They survived that scare against Arkansas. I like them in this tournament. Yeah, I think Gonzaga has the horses to beat South Carolina. The only thing, the X factor, is the foul situation. South Carolina plays a very aggressive style of defense. If Thornwell gets into foul trouble, if Silva gets into foul trouble, which they did Mm -hmm. in their semifinal game, the, the I, I guess they uh, they have now I'm backtracking. They have their ways around it. They have their depth, but I think Gonzaga is so deep at every position that it it doesn't matter if you know they're getting defended well. So, so, Saw in West yeah. Virginia. I, I, Sounds I'm like you want South Gonzaga. Carolina. I want South Carolina, but, but I'm gonna pick. root or I'm gonna pick 
the two number one seeds. The two outsiders had a nice story, and their road was treacherous, but I think it's going to be chalk uh, facing each other. You like Gonzaga to go all the way, or do you think no, it's Carolina? I think it's Carolina, yeah. but I, I, I'd like to see Gonzaga test their wits against the ACC's best. Okay, well... We'll be on our, our hands and knees and toes and whatever we need to watch these games because, it's, as we saw last year, anything can happen in the Final Four. I'll actually be down uh, Arizona Ways this weekend, so ah. I will. I'll give you a report live from, yeah. from Glendale. Staying through get, Monday? Staying stay through Monday? Yeah, we're, we're uh, heading back Monday, so okay. I don't know if, if we'll be able to watch the game or if we're just going to listen on the road. But oh, you got to get back for the game. but no. you got to get a Devin Booker shirt, yeah. that's for sure. I know. Get one before he sells out. Get one with a 70 on the back. Well, before he scores 73. So that's all I would say. Well, Tom Weizenbach, thanks for joining the show. We'll be talking soon, that's for sure. College basketball winding down to the end of the season. Huge thanks to my good friend Tom Weizenbach for hopping on the podcast. and breaking down some March Madness action. Just three college basketball games left in the season. It's hard to believe we've got to that point. But so it goes in this springtime with the college sports season. And to continue on talking springtime college sports, Mike Innergaard, my good hockey buddy from North Dakota, we're SLU graduates. He's a Minnesota native now. We're going to talk about the Frozen Four. The final four is set in hockey. you got Harvard, Minnesota, Duluth, Notre Dame, and of course, Denver, four big teams that made the run through one season that forced Notre Dame. Frozen Four is in Chicago starting Thursday, April 6th, with the championship game on Saturday, April 8th. We're going to recap all that went down this past weekend in the greatest sport you guys might not be aware of, college hockey talk with Mike Indergaard. Here it is now on the Money Mitch Effect. All right, now joining us on the Money Mitch Effect. Calling in from Minnesota, hockey correspondent on this show, Mike Indergard. Mike, thanks for joining the show again. Thanks for having me, Mitch. Just want to point out, we've been doing a lot of episodes. You, you have any idea, Mike, what number episode this is? For your show in general, yeah, or for my, you and I? <laughs> for my show in general, I, I'll just—I know it's a hard guess. This is actually the 69th show, so just wanted to is point that out. Right? <laughs> just, and I. <laughs> In no way was that planned, but yeah, so nice. Yeah. All right, we're well, gonna talk. Be a lovely show. <laughs> yeah, it's setting up to be that way. We're gonna talk college hockey, and I te- I teased it a little bit last week, uh, at the end of the week that the Frozen Four was coming up, and we're both big hockey nuts. We we urge everybody to buy into college hockey as much as you get a chance to watch it. Every year, the Frozen Four, sixteen teams make the tournament. And so one and done, just like March Madness in basketball, win two games and you're going to go to the Frozen Four. Well, we just had the first two rounds, Mike, and they definitely lived up to the hype with some big, big time, good level collegiate hockey. Before we break down the games, Mike, I just want to just touch on one thing in general. You've been following college hockey for a long time. I've noticed, and I'm pretty sure you have as well, the game's getting a lot better. I think the quality of play specifically, and we saw it on display this weekend, is getting much better at the NCAA level. Oh, for sure. You know, I would have to agree 100% with that, and I think a lot of that has to do with the formation of, I guess, an agency called College Hockey Incorporated. Um, And it was formed roughly 10 years ago now, or a little over 10 years ago now, and its goal was to get 
NCAA hockey players better prepared for the NHL because they're starting to lose the battle on recruits to major junior hockey. And now we're with the coming of age of that uh, organization and, and the really just the growing talent in the NCAA, we're starting to see more and more of these guys being high draft picks, sticking around and playing, uh, representing schools here in the U.S., and then going on to have successful NHL careers. Yeah, and you know what I've noticed too, Mike? I think a lot of the top players now in the junior ranks, whether that's in America, if it's NTDP, U.S. national team players, or from Canada even, and even some Europeans I should point out too, they're choosing to play college hockey. What do you think specifically is pushing that to be the case? Is it the level of play getting better? Is it that the options are there for you, the coaching? What do you think it is? I think it's a combination of everything. I think, you know, especially with the European aspect, uh, these kids are coming over and they're playing in the USHL and they're playing up in uh, some of the other junior leagues, non-major junior leagues in Canada, and they're opening up. They're getting opportunities at the NCAA level that they've never had before, and, and the level of play is so fast. And I think what sets it apart is these, you know, these kids, really, your teenage kids are going to get a normal experience. They're going to get to go to college. You know, if you think about it, if you're playing major junior hockey, you're basically becoming a professional at the age of 16. Whereas in the NCAA route, you're going to get the opportunity to be a college kid, plus play the game you love and have a great chance to go to the NHL. And I'll uh, point out that this year in the NCAA, or in NCAA men's hockey, there were 80 Europeans playing wow. in the entire NCAA. Ten years ago, there was less than 30. Wow. That just goes to show you how uh, NCAA hockey has grown uh, over the years and is really a great opportunity for these kids. Yeah, it also keeps your options open, right? Like if you're going that pro route, you can't go to college. That's it. Like, you've, you've lost the ability to play for a school. And right. I, think it's, I think it's good, too. I mean, it's growing the game. We, the American sports fans aren't going to buy into junior hockey. They're going to buy into college hockey. They're going to buy into big events like the Frozen Four this year in Chicago. And I definitely do think it's good for the game. But, Mike, let's break down the first two rounds of this year's NCAA hockey tournament and... On the surface, it didn't look like too much craziness happened. We had three one seeds that made it there, and a four seed, which we'll get to in just a minute, Mike. But all of these games were pretty tight. Uh, some great hockey, as I mentioned. I want to start with that East region where it was Harvard. The Crimson come out of that round, and they do, the number three team in the country, they do make the Frozen Four. Mike, Harvard has been on a tear this year. They beat Providence 3 to nothing. In the first game, then they faced an Air Force team who beat Western Michigan 5-4 to get to the regional final. They beat them 3-2. Mike, Harvard has been living in the Boston shadow of both BU and BC. They win the Beanpot for the first time in over two decades this year. And then now they keep it going. I mean, this is the season, the, the dream season. I mean, there's no other way to put it. Harvard hasn't had a good as has not had a season anywhere near this good in a long time. No, they haven't. It truly has been impressive. They're a big team. They're a fast team. And they don't play like the rest of the Ivy League schools, in my opinion. They play more like a, a Western school. They're, they're willing to get in the corners. They can skate a lot better than most of the other teams. And they have some really good coaching, in my opinion. Ted Donato has done a great job with that program, his alma mater, turning it around and turning it back into a national power. 
He has. And, and I don't want to take anything away from Harvard, but I want to just bring this up too, Mike. I think it needs to be said. This might have been the weakest region. Would you agree with that? You know, I, yeah, I would agree. Western Michigan was probably the weakest NCHC team to make the tournament. And, you know, Air Force is a good story, but they just they didn't have the horses to keep up with a team like Harvard. And um, I definitely think that it was the easiest region uh, this year's tournament. I do want to give props, though, to Air Force, Mike. They lose in that regional final 3-2. to two. And this was a team that had their second most wins in school history at 27. They also led the country in penalty kill percentage, I think 89% or so. And from the hockey mindset, as, as we know, Mike, when you have to play a team like Air Force, they're not the flashiest, they're not the most skilled, but they're gritty, they're going to compete, and they're just going to make life difficult. Yeah, and, you know, their their penalty kill, which did rank number one in the NCAA uh, year, year close, it was 90% actually. And I think uh, another thing you can add to their repertoire as a team was their discipline. You know, you have to be disciplined to make it to one of the service academies, oh, certainly yeah. to play a sport at one of the service academies. And I think uh, their discipline and their attention to detail really showed in the fact that they were able to kill penalties this season at 90%. Yeah, well, you got to give credit to Air Force. What a season they had, but it's Harvard moving on, and they're a very dangerous team. They've proven that they could win big matchups, and they're moving on to Chicago, the first uh, of the four teams we're going to talk about as I continue talking college hockey with Mike Indergaard on the Money Mitch Effect. Mike, let's go to the Midwest region. A lot to talk about here. A lot of fireworks in this region, as Denver is the team, the top team in the country. They're going to the Frozen Four. They punched their ticket, but... Denver got Michigan Tech in the first round. They beat them 5-2. to two. And they played Penn State, who might Penn State 10-3 to three over Union in the first round. Anytime you score 10 goals in any level of hockey, it's an accomplishment, let alone the NCAA tournament. I was expecting a lot, Mike, in this tournament. I don't think I was expecting Penn State to drop 10, a 10 spot on Union. Yeah, especially uh, a program in, in its fifth year as a varsity program making the NCAA tournament for the first time. They came out with a bang. I don't think anyone expected them to put up 10, especially on a, in my opinion, a, a deep and uh, talented union team. But you never say never with this tournament, and uh, what an offensive display they put on. Nobody, I think, I don't think anybody had a hat trick in that game. They were spreading it out in five years. They, they went from club to NCAA level. There was a learning curve. They, they actually lost to some high-end club teams along the way. But here they are now winning the Big Ten, the conference, and the conference championship, and now getting here. And there's a lot going on with this Penn State program to like in the future. Yeah, for sure. A lot to be excited about. And uh, what I think is most cool about their program, or the coolest thing about their program, is the fact that they've gotten the fans so rabid about this program in such a short amount of time. I mean, if you, I have never gotten to experience going to a game in what they now call Hockey Valley but that arena is always sold out. It's a beautiful arena. It's loud. The students are really uh, getting into the game and understanding it well, and it just uh, I think it's great for the game of hockey and great for their school as they continue to grow and get high-end recruits, and the future is bright for Penn State. Yeah, they lost in the final 6-3 to three to Denver. Mike, we've been on this Denver team for a while. They're the number one team in the country only losing seven games all year. And the amount of skill that they have up front, we think Penn State's loaded. 
it's scary to watch Denver, led by U.S. junior junior hockey, world junior hockey uh, sensation Troy Terry, just put on a show. And that's the way I'll describe it. You watch this Denver team, and they're playing at another gear. It's almost like they have that extra speed gear that they can get to. And when they're clicking, it's high flying for sure. Oh, for sure. They're easily the deepest team in this NCAA tournament, certainly the deepest team remaining. They have got the ability to score from all all different angles. They've got solid goaltending. They've got a deep defensive core that includes four seniors. And, you know, they're a scary team, and they're built, in my opinion, a lot like North Dakota was last year, who ended up winning the NCAA tournament. So going forward, the Frozen Four and the chance of championship is looking pretty good for Denver. They are, and they won that game with ease and that 6-3 win, not really that close as Denver uh, won that game. And, Mike, you brought up a good point. They're senior-laden, especially on the back line. How important do you think that is? I mean, when we're talking about this format, I know Denver's great. They're the number one team, but we've seen one seeds go out in the first game time and time again. You lose one game, you're out. How important is it to have these seniors, not necessarily freshmen and sophomore underclassmen studs, on your team? It's important to have a balance. You know, you, you, you want to certainly have that, that high-end underclassman talent, which Denver has, loaded with high-round draft picks in their freshman and sophomore class. But then that senior upperclassman, especially that senior leadership, and especially on the back end on defense, really helps the team even out. It keeps the underclassmen superstars in check, keeps them playing the team game. And um, having, having a few seniors on your team as the season goes on is really important in college hockey. And especially for Denver, those seniors have been to the Frozen Four before. They know how to win come tournament time. They know how to turn it on in big games. And I think it trickles down to the young guys who are already you know, great players in their own right and just shaping up to be a, a, good, uh, a good experience for them. Yeah, that balance is clutch. Denver has it. They've got that focus. They didn't slip up early. They're a good team. They're a damn good team. They're in the Frozen Four. They've been playing well all year. They punched their ticket. And they do it by beating Penn State. I do want to give a shout-out, Mike, to, the you know, we got we to gotta let our, our, our mutual friend know. <laughs> David Goodwin had a good season. Even if his brother owes me money, he's he was a good captain for Penn State. <laughs> so, all right, money mission fact. I had to bring that up, man. I mean, I, I just had to. You know, he's a, uh, David Goodwin, he comes from a, a good family, uh, as you mentioned, we, uh, Mitch and I lived with his uh, older brother, Paul, uh, back in college. And, uh, you know, great hockey players, great bunch of guys, and um, can't say enough about him going forward. As I continue chatting with Mike Indergaard on the Money Mitch effect about college hockey NCAA 2017 tournament, Mike, let's go to the West. Interesting that this was held in Fargo, where one of the teams plays out of, but I digress. This was the overtime regional. Every single game, Mike, every single game went into extra time, and it was something to see. I know from your perspective, it was a tough one. You're North Dakota, and for the purpose of this interview, Mike, we're going to call it the Sioux, if that's all right with you. Can I? Can we, can we just do that? You're fine with me. Okay. North Dakota, the Sioux, lost to... BU, Boston University, in double overtime. Mike, arguably the game of the tournament. And I don't say that just because it went into double OT, but the defending champs, North Dakota, is out. I thought this was a good game. The overturn in, in 
the overturn in overtime was an interesting decision, but I can't say I full-on disagree with it. And ultimately, a couple bounces went BU's way, and they capitalized on it. I don't know if you saw it any differently, but I saw a good hockey game that, unfortunately, one team had to lose. Yeah, you know, I, I absolutely 100% agree with you. Um, you know, it was just back and forth, nonstop action. They did, they called this the region of doom for a reason. You know, I think there were four teams in this region that were poised to make a run deep into this tournament, and it made for some great hockey. And you're right, in the North Dakota uh, BU game, you can't ask for better play than that. It was back and forth, a lot of offensive talent, a ton of NHL talent on the ice for both teams, and one team had to lose, and sometimes the bounces go, you know, a certain way, and, and there's nothing to hang your head on if you're a North Dakota player or fan. You, you know, everyone played their guts out, and uh, it was great hockey for sure. Edinger and Nett, Mike, all those saves he made for BU as North Dakota was was putting shots after shot. How about Brandon Hickey for, for BU? 17 block shots as a defenseman. 17. Go get that guy an ice pack. Holy smokes. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah. I know. I thought he was like uh, Rob Lowe at the end of Tommy Boy. That's kind of what I thought <laughs> watching the highlights from that game. But in a, on a more, more serious side, Mike, you get BU that finally, you mentioned that balance. After this game, I thought that they were going to be a little tired, but they had that mix of younger and older guys. McAvoy and Keller, who Keller already in playing pro hockey, McAvoy is is going to be a, a stud, no doubt. But these are some big-time guys, and you got the sense that BU is really building something later in the season, and winning that game over North Dakota, you thought, okay, they beat North Dakota in Fargo, they can go to the regional final and have a pretty good chance. I got the sense that they were kind of hoping Ohio State was going to come out of that next game. Oh, they were definitely hoping that Ohio State was coming out of that next game. Just uh, Minnesota Duluth is a senior-laden team. As seven seniors came back, uh, made a pact to stick together and make one more run at a national title. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, I believe Ohio State's arguably their best player was suspended yeah. for this game due to some uh, incidents he had during the Big Ten uh, tournament and regular season and but, you know, Boston University certainly didn't play like a young team. They played like a team that was that had come to play. They were very well coached. David Quinn has done a, a great job with that program, not only in recruiting, but also with his on-ice strategy and play. And it was just nothing but entertaining hockey. Yeah, it was Healy for Ohio State, actually. And I'm glad you brought that up. He, he was their best defenseman, arguably their best player. Gets a misconduct and a head contact. Double whammy in the Big Ten title game was suspended for the game against Duluth. And, Mike, the Buckeyes season, they weren't expected to be here. Like, we knew Duluth would be good. We figured BU and even North Dakota defending champs. But the Buckeyes even getting this part, getting to overtime with Duluth, and then arguably being a better team for a lot of that game. I thought their season might have been the most surprising storyline in college hockey this year. Oh, definitely, and that's that's what I love about hockey in general. Anything can happen. You know, any of these teams can get hot at the right time and click and come together and play. And, you know, Ohio State, I think, was sneaky good about them is they had one of the best power plays in all, not just the Big Ten, but all of Division One hockey. And, you know, I think down the stretch, they kind of uh, depended on that. It, it came through for them, and, you know, I'm sure the guys in the Ohio State locker room 
knew how good they were they could be and certainly weren't surprised by how their season went but for us fans they, they're definitely the biggest surprise in the tournament it was a remarkable run just to even get to the tournament and even needing to get some help with Penn State beating Wisconsin in that Big Ten title game, but they were right in it every step of the way. Duluth then went on to win another game in overtime over Boston University, 3-2. to two. Mike, I watched a great deal of this game, and anytime there's a little bit of a, there's a penalty in overtime, you always get that extra bit of nervous, but I was doubly so for BU, not really having a horse in this race, I thought. The way Duluth was playing, the seniors on their team, their way the power play was clicking late in the season. I thought when that penalty came, I thought, you know, it was over. Yeah, you know, they, they're just, they're such a deep team. They're just like Denver in that they can roll four lines, roll solid deep pair after solid deep pair, and, and their goaltending has been surprisingly good uh, this year, coming, especially since their goalies they've played this year as a freshman. And any time in overtime you get a you get a penalty like that, you get a chance, you got to capitalize. And Duluth, you know, certainly uh, did that. Duluth getting this win, surviving the region of doom. They're happy they got some time before their next game. Let's put it that way. They're happy that there's not another game a day or two later, going on to the Frozen Four. And it's interesting, Mike, because I left out one region, the final one to get to, and that is the Northeast where things did not go according to plan. I know you're happy anytime the Gophers lose. They were the only one seed that didn't hold up their end of the bargain. They lose to Notre Dame 3-2 to two in that first round. If there's any consolation for North Dakota losing this weekend, Mike, I'd have to imagine for you it's Minnesota also losing. Yeah, any North Dakota, serious North Dakota fans certainly like being able to uh, bow out time the golfers do or go farther than them but you know this region was really interesting because i of all the one seeds i was looking for the different regions of all the one seeds being completely unbiased here truthfully i I think minnesota was probably the weakest number one seed i honestly thought that umass lowell should have probably been the one seed in this region Mm -hmm. they weren't and i was i was honestly shocked umass lowell didn't make it out i had picked them to make it to the frozen four but, you know, what a great story Notre Dame was. And it just goes to show you that at tournament time, it's not always the best team. Certainly in NCAA tournaments, whether that's hockey or basketball or, any, you know, any tournament, it's not always the best team that wins. It's the team that, that clicks at the right time, that gets good good play from, from role players and their star players. And Notre Dame was is going to bring a huge uh, contingent of fans to Chicago. And, oh, yeah going to bring some exciting hockey to the Frozen Four. And I think the old, a lot of people get that phrase mixed up. I'm glad you brought this up. It is the team that clicks at the right time. Mike, some people think it's the hottest team. Notre Dame was not hot entering this tournament. They got destroyed by that same UMass Lowell team, 5-1, to one, in the Hockey East Championship game, the last Hockey East game that they're playing now that they move on to the Big Ten next year. But, Mike... They got beat by that same team. And on Sunday, that was not a 5-1 game. That was a game Notre Dame was up dominant for most of it. It just really impressed me with how they were able to just flip the switch, turn the page, whatever metaphor you want to use, playing that same team and just saying the past is the past. We're going to come out and get this one. Yeah, and that just shows, you know, I think a lot of their leadership. You know, I think the captains and and upperclassmen leaders in that team got the guys together and, and said, listen, you know, that this game against Lowell and the, the hockey 
championship. We've got to put that behind us. Uh, we have a whole new set of games in front of us, new life, if you will, and we, we're going to run with it, boys. You know, we got we got to get going, and uh, they, they took heed, and they played a really solid tournament. They did, and they moved to Chicago, where you mentioned. That's where the, the Frozen Four is being played. Notre Dame being in it, Mike, it might not be the best, the fourth best team in the country, but having them, this school, in this city, so close and, and so rich with fighting Irish blood, it can only make this tournament better. I think there's no other way to put it. This is a gold mine for the NCAA hockey tournament. Oh, for sure. You know, I, I'm sure the NCAA is loving the fact that Notre Dame made it to Chicago. And, you know, Chicago has kind of had a hockey renaissance, you could say, with the success of the Blackhawks over the last several years. And cool that they're getting a, a chance to host a Frozen Four. And I think that that arena is going to be packed, it's going to be loud, and it's going to be some great hockey. Certainly should be. Well, let's look at that now, Mike, in regard to Money Mitch Effect. We might not get a chance to talk about this beforehand. I know we got some time. The first games aren't until Thursday, April 6th, championship game on the 8th. Mike, it's on one side of the bracket, Harvard and Duluth. Now, this was, this was chalk. This is what we thought we would see. Who do you give the edge to in this one, ultimately? Who do you like to come away with the win in this matchup? You know, I'm, I'm actually going to pick Harvard. Just just the way they were playing, I know that, that Duluth is a senior-laden team. They're deep. But, you know, just the way Harvard was playing, their size, their tenacity, I, I'm going to pick uh, Harvard in a close one, probably a 4-3 a or 3-2 game to move on. You know, I'm going to go Duluth here, and this is a tough game to predict. I'll, I'll put it like this. Harvard's a good team. They've, they've won a lot this year. But Duluth, and maybe this is me just being set in my ways, but give me the team that's battle-tested. We see it in the Stanley Cup playoffs all the time. If you can survive those, those early moments of duress and despair, you can use that to go forward. And I like Duluth winning two overtime games to keep it going. If they win this game in overtime, I mean, that should scare whoever comes out of the other side. Oh, that's absolutely <laughs> true there. And I think it's going to be a phenomenal game. I think it's going to be so extremely close and fast. It's going to be hard hitting. It's going to be crisp passes. It's going to be great plays set up. It's going to be great hockey. It should be. And, and yeah, Duluth also, you know, when they won their title, Mike, that was an overtime game. So maybe it's just something in the water for them. But they have that overtime edge. Denver and Notre Dame on the other side. Man, I, I, I was all ready, Mike, to buy into Notre Dame having a chance to, to make some noise at the Frozen Four. And maybe I'm telling my hand here, but I like them maybe second or third best in this field, given the momentum they have, the Chicago vibe. But I can't pick against Denver. Not this team, not this year. Too much skill. I like the Pioneers. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally in agreement with you there. Uh, Notre Dame is a great story. It's going to be great for the Frozen Four, but Denver, is, they're just too deep. Uh, they're just too skilled, and their goaltending as of late has been actually really good. So I, I'm picking Denver to move on in this one. Yeah, and I think it sounds like we're kind of both in agreement, Mike. This is uh, another year for Denver. I, I like them to win the title, their first since 2005. Yeah, I, I agree, too. I, I had picked Denver when this whole uh, tournament started. I had sent you a bracket, and I, I had picked Verified. Denver to win it all. They just I've seen them play twice 
this year in person, and they are just, they are so skilled, they are so deep, I could not pick them. Yeah, I'm with you there. And uh, the last time they won, I got to go to that game. I'm sorry to keep bringing up bad memories when they beat North Dakota, but that was the <laughs> last time I saw Denver in person. They won a title, and uh, yeah, I think it'll be an interesting one. Well, it should be a good time for hockey. Mike Intergard, before I let you go, well, there's a couple of housekeeping items. First up, I want to want to get your thoughts on our friend, our buddy, no longer coaching at Nebraska-Omaha. What does that mean with Dean Blaze stepping down? I mean, I know he holds a special spot in your heart, but it has to be, you know, a little sad to see one of the greats go. You know, it is It is kind of sad to see probably uh, one of the members of the Mount Rushmore of college hockey coaches or arguably hockey coaches in general. You know, he was a great hockey mind. He was intense to get the most out of any player. But, you know, he was he's getting up there in age. He's coached at literally every level of hockey there is and you know I think it was time for him to kind of move on with his life and and um, I think there's some other issues going on in Nebraska Omaha as far as their sports department goes right now that he kind of didn't have the energy to deal with anymore and so that to see him go but you know I'm happy for him and wish him the best. Yeah, you never want to see one of the greats retire. We we've seen his, his work at everywhere he's gone. He's had a po- gone. He's had a positive impact, and it's sad. You know what he did for that program. I mean, we know he won it in North Dakota. He established them. He reestablished them. I should say as a pioneer, as a top team. But he took Nebraska Omaha, built them basically from scratch. He's won at the junior level. He's been a scout. He's done. He's done it all. He's seen it all, and I'm gonna miss him as well. And I'm always going to remember that elevator ride. I keep bringing it up, Mike, but I'll never <laughs> leave my mind when he I had, could forget. When he had a review not. go against him and he said everything right, PC, in the press conference, and then unloaded about 30 F-bombs in a 10-second elevator ride. <laughs> I think so. I think it was the you got to love it. Yeah. That just, I mean, it just shows how intense he was. You know, he's, he, was, he was a great guy, would talk to anyone. In fact, I remember my dad telling me a story. He So Dean coached the Fargo Force uh, USHL team for a year and my dad used to like go to the rink and stuff and one time uh, he was there after one of their practices and Coach Blaze was out walking around and he sat and talked hockey with my dad for like half an hour or something and my dad always kind of cherishes that moment and you know he was uh, he was just a great hockey mind but an intense guy too and certainly drew great players and great hockey minds towards him. Yeah, well, that's awesome. And, and I think those are the stories that people are going to have. The one we had, talk, your dad's story, talking to, talking hockey with him, just a hockey guy that was a down-to-earth guy that was you know intense about what he did but was, was willing to share his stories. And, and you can see the legacy he has. Two guys like us talking about him shows the impact of his life's work. Mike Indergaard, thanks for joining the show. Uh, it is a lot of sadness going around here. I'm, I'm getting ready to say goodbye to the Joe Lewis Arena too. I mean, I don't, you know, I know you were a Wings fan at heart too, and that's going to be a sad day on April 9th when they play the Devils in their last game. Yeah, you know, and and the the playoff streak also came to an end this year. And but you know what a man, what a what an arena full of history. You know, full of heart. Sad to see it go, but. You know, I think the Wings players are excited to move into a new place, and uh, the city of Detroit will always cherish that arena. 
as well as the NHL and NHL fans will all cherish that arena. And, you know, I, I always kind of wish I would have gotten the chance to go to a game there and I never did, but it certainly will be missed. Yeah. I mean, I, look, if you have ever gotten the chance, anybody has ever gotten the chance to go there. I mean, I was lucky enough when I was 16 years old, Mike, to play a travel game against the Little Caesars organization. If you've never been to the lower level to just anywhere in that arena, it's impossible to comprehend the amount of history that you're walking into, to see the photos on the wall, to see just the stories, to feel the presence. I know it sounds cliche, but that arena has held so much of American sports culture in it. Madison Square Garden and that, that's it to me. That's the, the Mount Rushmore. There's only two on there. I, I can't think of any other places where sports history has meant that much. It's sad. I mean, but hey, if it's if the playoff streak was going to end any year, Mike, it's fitting that it ends this year. Yep. Uh, you know, hopefully they, when that day comes, playing the Devils, hopefully they can send Joe Serena off with a win and, you know, something that the fans will remember for the rest of their lives and then, Hopefully they can uh, use that to build towards a new future in their new rink. Absolutely. Uh, I couldn't have said it better myself, and I hope that the Red Wings are back to being a contender soon. It's good for the game, and wherever they play next, they can start to build, slowly build that presence, that that arena value that they got in Joe Louis Arena. It's going to take a while longer than we're alive, but you can always hope for it. Well, Mike Indergaard, thanks for joining the show, talking some hockey. We'll have to keep tabs on the Frozen Four. And remember, you're welcome back anytime. Thanks again for joining the Money Mitch Effect. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mitch. You take care. Thanks again to both Mike Indergaard and Tom Weisenbach, guests on today's show, for coming by, talking college athletics. Really enhance the show. Glad they could come by to talk sports. All episodes of The Money Mitch Effect can be found on SourCloud, iTunes, and Google Play, where you can like, subscribe if you want to, not pressure me. Maybe even leave a nice review, that'd be good. The entire catalog of episodes is there, 69 now, nice in total. A lot of good content there, some interviews covering a plethora of different sports. We're looking forward to having one more episode this week. Gotta talk about the Raiders going to Las Vegas, a stunner there sarcasm, but looking at some other sports stories as well. NBA and NHL action heating up. You're not going to want to miss our coverage of that. It's going to do it for today's episode of The Money Mitch Effect. I am Mitch Michaels. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep enjoying sports, everybody.